reading from Genesis chapter 12, beginning at the first verse. And the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And he who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he went out from Haran. Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, And all the possessions they had gathered and all the people they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go into the land of Canaan. And when they came into the land of Canaan, when they came into the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land and came to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Moreh. Now in those days, the Canaanites were in the land, and the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring... I will give this land. And Abram built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. How do we learn to trust God? How do we learn to trust God? It's kind of a good question during Lent, isn't it? You know, this is a season that's not just about depriving ourselves, but it's a season that's about building faith. I mean, part of the reason we enter this season of Lent about penitence and recognizing our need before God is it's a wonderful soul-searching reminder on a yearly basis that I am not my own Savior, that I am not trustworthy, only God is trustworthy. I am definitely in need. And this is the language of faith. In Lent, ultimately, it's not about giving up chocolate, although that might be really important for you. Maybe that's what's getting in the way, or caffeine, or Netflix. It's about ultimately through those disciplines of depriving yourself to say, I want, oh Lord, you to build my faith. When some of you heard the story, but when our second daughter, SJ, was born, she was very sick. We were up in the north, our first parish, way up north, close to Alaska, in a northern hospital. It was not quite the level of medical care we wanted for our 36-hour baby, who was really, really not doing well. And as we sat there in the nursery with Monica, rocking her in the neonatal unit, um, and I was sitting next to her, I was crying out to God. It was all about her breathing and major issues. And I was saying, we need a new hospital. We need a new doctor. We need a new treatment plan. We need, we need. I was in fix-it mode. And for one of the few times in my life where it's as close to an audible voice as I've ever heard, I heard these words echo through my head. You don't need a a new doctor. You need me. And in that moment, it was the question of trust In the midst of crisis, the question of trust and faith. Now, as you're getting used to my pattern, there's more to this story, but you have to wait to the end of the sermon to hear it. Lent, as I said, is a faith-growing season. And so we're walking for the next four weeks 
through the story of Abram. Abraham, you might say, what is it, Abram or Abraham? Well, in Genesis 12, he's still Abram, which means exalted father. He will get a name change to Abraham, the father of a multitude. But both names are quite ironic because back in chapter 11, we've already read that Sarai, who will also get a name change, by the way, Sarai is barren. How is he possibly going to be exalted father, let alone father of a multitude? And yet as we look at these highlights, and we're really just kind of doing the highlights reel of Abraham's life, we're going to see a picture of a life grabbed a hold of by God in such a way that his faith grows. God grows Abraham's faith through these chapters. Our text today in Genesis 12, if you want to turn with me, we're at Genesis 12 verse 1, begins with this amazing big promise. God makes a big promise to Abraham. Verse 1 says, now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. So the first part of the promise is land. Leave everything you have, leave where you are, leave your people, and go to a new land. The first part of this promise is land, a place to prosper. But the second part of the promise is verse 2, and I will make of you a great nation, which is offspring, children. I mean, you can't have a great nation without kids, right? And so for Abram, the promise is, I'm going to give you land, God says. I'm going to give you offspring, which, of course, already is asking this question, how, if Sarai is barren? But then the third part of the promise is, I will bless you. I will bless you. That language comes up again and again. Land, offspring, blessing. And it's funny, you know, sometimes we look at biblical words, and we need to take a moment and and actually unpack them and define them, because I think we get so used to what we think these words mean, and we forget. Do we know what blessing means in Scripture? Well, this week I was looking, uh, and I I thought, i I got to define blessing. And so I grabbed my Oxford English Dictionary, you know, my double-volume set, that massive thing that you got to read with a magnifying glass. Yeah, I will open up the OED. And up till today, up until this, you know, this, this year in Texas, I thought I knew what blessing was. I'll explain in a moment. The Oxford English Dictionary says this. That blessing is to confer well-being on someone or to make someone happy or to cause someone to prosper or to endow someone with what they need. That is blessing. But then I came to Texas a year ago almost, and I began to hear the phrase, bless your heart. (laughs) I got to tell you, Texas... It took me a while to figure out that that didn't actually mean what it sounds like it means. And I'll tell you as well, Texas, you have stumped the Oxford English Dictionary. There's no reference in there to this understanding of bless your heart. Uh, We saw a t-shirt when we got here. Uh, We heard about a t-shirt that said, uh, you know, you bless my heart, I punch your face. And I wanted to say to my children, we are in a foreign land. Bless your heart. Well, this idea of blessing, other than in Texas, means to confer incredible joy, to confer well-being. And so this promise, this big promise, land, offspring, blessing. This is the big promise from the Lord to Abram. Could really be summed up in the phrase that you're going to hear again and again in this series, the Lord will 
provide. That's really what God is saying to Abram. I will provide everything that you need. I will provide. And of course, the question then is, will he trust it? I mean, that's what he's faced with with this opening verse. The first word out of the Lord's mouth in verse 1 here is, go. Go from your country, your kindred, and your father's house. There's great risk involved here. There's great cost for him to say yes to this promise from God. The question is, how does he do it? Well, Hebrews 11 gives us a little window. Hebrews 11, which is kind of the hall of fame of heroes of the faith. Hebrews 11, where most people get one line in Hebrews 11. Moses gets six lines, and Abraham gets 12 verses in verse 11. Abraham's, if we want to understand this hall of heroes, we got to look at Abraham's life. And it's summed up in verse 8 of chapter 11 when it says, by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go by faith. How did he do it? How did he respond to this incredible calling? He did it by faith. He did it by faith. Now, faith is something that, you know, is not as popular, you could say, in our world. Um, At least it's misunderstood. People often think of faith as some kind of blind idiocy, Right? You know, oh, you, oh your, your faith, it's all blind. It's sort of just running into something and, you know, kind of hoping for the best. But that's not actually a picture of faith in the Bible. Hebrews 11 defines faith in verse 1 as faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Now, so there's a not seen aspect here. There's no way you can enter into the discussion of faith without there being an unseen reality. As uh, chapter 11, verse 8 goes on to say for Abraham, he went out, Abram went out, not knowing where he was going. I love that phrase. I'd like to write a book one day called Going and Not Knowing, right? Sometimes it describes some of our road trips. But the point is that it's this sense of, of There is an unknown, there's an unseen element here, and yet it's not blind. See, Abram's faith, we're gonna see in these stories as we walk through, grows as he gets to know the one who sent him. Abram is growing in his trust, and that's really probably the best translation of the word faith, trust. Abram's learning to trust the Lord as he gets to know the Lord more. As he knows him, he trusts him more. And so today in our text, we're going to look at three things very quickly, three aspects that we see in this text today that I think help Abram grow in his faith. How do we learn to trust God? Well, look at this part of Abram's life. We first see that God's interaction with Abram is personal. That's part of the story of him building his faith. It's personal. But the second thing is it's not only personal, but God's interaction with Abram is purpose-filled. There's a purpose. There's a reason. There's a a promise of a glorious purpose in this interaction. And finally, not only is it personal, not only is it filled with purpose, but God will prove his trustworthiness to Abram again and again. God will demonstrate his trustworthiness, purpose, personal, and proven. So first, look at verse 1. It's personal. God's interaction with Abram is personal. 
The Lord said to Abram, verse 1 says, the Lord said to Abram. It's a conversation. They're, they're talking to one another. Right? It, it, it's not a philosophy. It's not a set of religious rules. This is a relationship. God speaks to Abram. And unless you think maybe, you know, it's, it's like in Abram's head, and we don't know how God spoke to Abram, but he spoke. Verse 7, it says, the Lord appeared to Abram. I mean, so this is a relational, personal experience. Abram is having an encounter with a God who is personal and real to him. I mean, this is the amazing story of Scripture, isn't it? That as we celebrate at Christmas, that God in Christ Jesus has come among us. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Or as Eugene Peterson says, the Word of God moved into the neighborhood that it means that God has moved into our lives. God engages with us. That the calling of the Bible is to a personal relationship with God. Not some abstract or distant relationship, but a personal, real relationship with God. It's like I remember years ago, Larry King. Remember Larry King? Larry King had Billy Graham on one Easter morning. And, and there's, there, or Easter even, like the night before Easter. And, and, and it was Larry King live. And, and he said to Billy Graham, he said, Billy... He leaned across the table and said, how do you know, I mean, really, really know that Jesus actually rose from the dead? And Billy Graham didn't miss a beat, and he said, because I spoke with him this morning. <laughs> and King had nothing to say in response. <laughs> I mean, that's the personal nature of this relationship with God, one who engages us personally, each of us. And, and, and if you're sitting here today and you're thinking, what is he talking about? God is personal? Well, this is your invitation. I mean, God is calling to his people. God wants to engage with each and every person in this world in a personal way. He wants to speak into your life. And what's amazing in this text is we see that Abram sees this personal nature of God, even in the language of the promises. Because listen to the personal pronouns. Uh, you know, God saying, I. You know, singular personal pronouns. How much has God put himself in this promise? Verse one, God says, I will show you. Verse two, God says, I will make you. I will bless you. I will curse. And verse seven, I will give you your offspring this land. I mean, God is promising in this text to do all the heavy lifting. God is saying to Abram, you know, here's a promise, and guess what? I'm going to be the one there doing it for you. You're going to stand back and see the salvation of God in your life. You're going to see this incredible work of God. I'm going to be doing the heavy lifting, Abram, which means what? Proximity. If God is doing all the heavy lifting, then that means God is near. God is with Abram in this. God doesn't just give him a bunch of standing orders and says, well, we'll check in with you in 10 years. God is going to walk with him through this. It reminds me in The Lord of the Rings, a great Lenten devotional reading, I, I, I can assure you. The Lord of the Rings. In The Lord of the Rings, in Fellowship of the Ring, when Frodo, you know, the little guy in the story, with all these big warriors around him, they're all fighting about what to do with this ring, and, and, and Frodo steps forward in the moment of truth and says, I will take the ring to Mordor. And they all just get silent. And then he says this, he says, though I do not know the way, I love that because it's that language of like, I'm going to go. I'm the little guy's willing to go, but he's, he's kind of saying, is anyone going to go with me? 
And around that, this whole fellowship of the ring forms and they go with them. And it's the same with Abram. Abram is being called by God to do this amazing thing. Leave your country, leave your kindred, leave your father's house. And Abram's saying, I'll go. I do not know the way. And what the Lord is showing him in this text, I will show you, I will bless, I will be with you, is to say, I will be with you every step of the way. Does that not sound like Jesus at the ascension? Lo, I am with you always to the end of the age. God is personal. And that's how Abram's faith and trust in him grows. He has a personal encounter with the Lord. But also, not only is God personal, but God is purpose, God's interaction with Abram is purpose-filled. I mean, what Abram is having spoken over him is, is the language of purpose. Verse 3 says, in you, all the nations, all the families of the earth will be blessed. But can you imagine Abram hearing that? Through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. See, we often misunderstand that in the Bible. We say, well, God has his chosen people. And so we think, oh, well, God therefore loves his chosen people and ignores the rest. No, it's always the other way around. God in scripture has chooses a people because he loves the whole world. He's going to use this chosen people to grab a hold of and teach and show the world and draw the world to himself. And so in Abram, he's being given this purpose. Your life purpose is to be a blessing to all the families of the earth. And what's amazing is that that same purpose is spoken over us who are in Christ. I mean, where to Abram, he says, you will be a blessing to all the families of the earth to us before his ascension in Acts 1, he says, and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That's spoken over you at your baptism. That purpose. That's confirmed over you at your confirmation. And every time we gather at communion and are fed and then are sent out, it's confirmed again for us. This is your commissioning. This is your calling. This is your purpose. This is what your God is doing in your life. Not only is he personal, but he's got purpose for you. And we are so desperate for purpose, aren't we? Are you desperate for meaning, desperate for purpose? I think of Steve Jobs, you know, the Apple founder, when he was trying to recruit um, John Scully from Pepsi trying to woo him away from Pepsi. Jobs, who famously said, you know, he said, do you want to sell sugar water for the rest of your life? Or do you want to come with me and change the world? I mean, that's the language of purpose. That's the language of meaning and value. You see, this faith we are called into is not some kind of little bit of spirituality we add on top. It's not a bunch of religious convictions. This is your life. This is about taking a person who is dead and making us alive. This is about giving us purpose and value and meaning in the world. I know this week in our Lenten devotional, our Lent daily, I think it was Friday or Thursday, one of the days, we were encouraged to write our own obituary. I was expecting a flurry of hate mail from y'all, but it didn't come in because I think everyone realized this is actually a good exercise. You know, to think about, to think about the end. Where is my life going? What is my purpose? What is my meaning? Well, God comes into our lives personally and then says, I've got a purpose for you. I'm going to use you to transform the world. I'm going to use you to give me glory. You know, last week I talked about the glory of God. 
And you know what's amazing about the glory of God? Anything that glorifies God lasts forever. Because if, if you've read the book of Revelation or other passages of Scripture that talk about heaven, it's one big worship service, right? It's, it's more than just worship, but worship is tied into all of that. And what happens in heaven is everybody, you know, we're up there in heaven and someone calls out, hey, God should be glorified because of what he did in so-and-so's life. And then all of heaven loses it and goes crazy and worships. And then someone else says, oh, and then he did this in this person's life. And everybody falls down and throws their crowns down and goes bananas. And the point is, in your life, anything that you've done to glorify God, anything that results in a person being drawn closer to God, that will last forever because it will be called out from the choir loft of heaven eternally. That is purpose. And what's amazing in this text is we see actually this um, purpose already starting to be fulfilled. In verse 6, there's this great moment where uh, chapter 12, verse 6, um, where it says that when Abram gets to Canaan, which is the promised land, he goes to the place of Shechem. And place literally means site, which implies religious site. He goes to a pagan site. Shechem is a pagan site. There is the Oak of Moray there. And trees in pagan cultures were sort of like bridges between, you know, earth and heaven. And so this would be a little pagan shrine. And it's called the Oak of Moray. Moray means teacher, which basically means... Abram makes a beeline to this pagan shrine in Shechem where they are going for oracles. And what does he do? God visits him, appears to him there. The Lord appears to him. And then Abram builds an altar right there at the Oak of Moray. What's he doing? He's claiming the land for the Lord. He's saying this is no longer a pagan shrine. This is now the Lord's. And you know what's really cool? In verse 6, it says... In those days, there were Canaanites in the land. You see, his purpose is to go and be a blessing to all the nations. And so he goes into the land and finds these other nations, these other families there, and he says, all right, we're going to start today. I'm going to claim this land and these people for God. These will be God's people. He's living out the purpose now. He's already seeing it happening in his life. God is personal to Abram. God gives Abram purpose that he can't even dream to have. This is growing his faith. But finally, it's that God, in his interactions with Abram, proves his trustworthiness. You see, again, like I said, faith is not something that is just so blind that we say, well, I just, I'm going to get to the end of my life and hope that I made the right choice, right? That's Powerball. That's not faith. The point is that we get to the end of our lives saying, I've seen God's hand. Abram gets to the end of his life saying, I've seen God's hand again and again. I've seen him prove to me over time his faithfulness. That doesn't mean it all went well. Abram lives a big life. He's got big ups and he's got big downs, but he sees over his life God demonstrating, God proving his trustworthiness over time. You see, we see that in verse one where it says, now the Lord said to Abram, which is a bad translation. Don't get worried. It's okay. But it really should read, and God had said, past tense, to Abram. That's what the Hebrew says. God had said to Abram, go. And he said, well, what's the big deal? Well, here's the big deal. When I first read this passage years ago when I was a new Christian, it freaked me out. Because a lot of us, when we read this, we think, oh, 
chapter 12, verse 1, God speaks to Abram for the first time. Like, Abram doesn't even know the Lord, and then all of a sudden, the Lord speaks and says, go, leave your country, your kindred, your father's house. And I read that going, if that's how God interacts with us, I am terrified to ever hear from God. Out of nowhere, he just calls him and he goes to go? No, that's not what the text says. You see, let me give you a little outline here very quickly. In chapter 11, verse 28, we see that Abram is living in Ur of the Chaldeans. Okay, so he's living in Ur of the Chaldeans in Mesopotamia. Verse 31, it says that Abram and his son, Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, and they went from Ur of the Chaldeans to Haran. Okay, so they go from Ur of the Chaldeans in Mesopotamia to Haran, And then chapter 12, the Lord speaks and says, go to Canaan. And you're saying, where are you going with this? Well, you got to turn to Acts chapter 7. This is the first, you know, martyr, Stephen. This is his speech before he dies. And he gives us the little decoder ring on Abraham's life. When he says in chapter 7, verses 2, 3, and 4, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia. And then goes on to say, before he lived in Haran. And he said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God moved him from there into this land, Canaan, the promised land, into which you are now living. Again, you're still like, what is your point? My point is this. God didn't speak to Abraham for the first time in Genesis 12, verse 1. God has been speaking to Abram ever since he lived in Ur of the Chaldeans, ever since he lived in Haran, and in chapter 12, when he's 75 years old, we pick up the story. Over these 75 years of Abram's life, God has been speaking to him. He's come to know God personally. He's come to know the purpose that God has placed on his heart. And he has, through those 75 years, begun to see a picture of God proving his faithfulness. Do you see what I mean? That God over time speaks to us. It's rare that we have an experience like, you know, today it all happens and I go, well, now I just trust God. It's a series of compiled moments that happen over time, over seasons. I remember when I was, Monica and I were visiting um, our former Archbishop Bob Duncan, um, wonderful man of God, and his wife Nara. We were staying at their home a couple years ago. And when Bob and I were in uh, Nairobi back in 2013 for the second uh, Global Anglican Futures meeting, GAFCON, we... um, Archbishop Bob got really sick. I mean, like really sick, like almost died in Nairobi. He got this tooth abscess before he left left Pittsburgh, and it got so bad and infected that by the time he got to Nairobi, they were worried they might lose him. He's in Nairobi dying, and he's getting cared for, and God was amazing. But Monica and I were there, and I said to him one night when we were visiting with him and his wife, I said, how did you feel about that whole thing? Like, what was that experience like? And he said to us, he said, he said, I'm not trying to sound pious. I'm really not. But he said, I wasn't worried. And I said, really? And then he said this, he said, I'm laying there in Nairobi 
with this whole gathering of 1,300 Anglicans around the world that have completely realigned the Anglican communion by God's grace. Everything's changed. And he said, I'm sitting there dying in this Nairobi hospital. And he said, I'm saying, you know, with everything the Lord has done thus far, after seeing everything the Lord has done, everything the Lord has done, how can I worry about this? I mean, that's a picture of a man who over time, over season after season after season, has grown to a place of faith and trust because he's seen God prove, prove his trustworthiness. How do we learn to trust God? Lent is a faith-growing season. And so I ask you to ask yourself, and I ask me to ask myself in this season, how have I encountered God personally. And if you're a person in this room saying, I don't know if I have, then I would encourage you in this season to ask this personal God to come into your life because he's calling and he's ready. You just have to open the door. Behold, I stand at the door and knock, Jesus says. Whoever opens the door, I will come in and eat with them and they with me. It's all it takes. Jesus, I'm sorry for my sin. Please forgive me be my savior, come into my life. But I ask you, maybe, maybe you've gone through a season, you're, you're, you know the Lord, you're a Christian, but when's the last time you really thought about the personal nature of your relationship with God? Also, I ask you in this season, and I ask myself in this season to think about, you know, this, this purpose that God has put on my life. I'm doing a course starting next week about discerning our vocation, discerning our unique purposes that God puts before us. Look in this season at the question of purpose and you'll see your faith grow. But also, ask, how has God proven his trustworthiness to you over these years? How have you seen his hand? Thy hand, O God, has guided. How have you seen that? And you know, it's amazing as we come now to the table, we're reminded each week that if you're looking for the greatest proof of God's trustworthiness, we celebrate it here because Romans 5.8 says God proves his love to us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So come with Romans 5.8 on your heart. This is the proof. When SJ was born sick and her breathing was horrifying in that northern hospital, I heard that voice say, you don't need a new doctor, you need me. In my panic, that question was really saying, will you trust me? And I remember in that moment, thinking over the personal nature of God's relationship with me and my family, with the purpose that he had spoken over our lives, and again and again the ways that he has proved his trustworthiness. And, and with fingernails of faith, just clinging, you know, this is not about a lot of faith, this is about a little bit of faith in a big God. With a little bit of faith, able to say, Yes, Lord, I trust you. And hearing the words of Psalm 20 run through my head, some trust in chariots, some trust in horses, but our trust is in the name of the Lord our God. And with heaven as my witness, I'll tell you that in that very moment, that little girl's breathing calmed right down and she went home from the hospital the next day. Now, not every story ends like that, right? Not every story has a good news ending like that. 
But as we look over our lives, we see again and again God proving to us, I am trustworthy. And so like Abram, as verse 4 says, Abram went as the Lord had told him. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen.